Hi, this is Jeff Steele. Today we're reading Genesis 14, verses 1 through 16. About this time, war broke out in the region. King Amraphel of Babylonia, King Ariach of Elasar, King Kedarlaomer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goyim fought against King Berah of Sodom, King Bershah of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Admah, King Shemever of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, also called Zor. The second group of kings joined forces in Sidim Valley, that is, the Valley of the Dead Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to King Kedarla Omer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled against him. One year later, Kedarla Omer and his armies, uh, his allies, arrived and defeated the Rephaites at Ashtaroth Kirnaim, the Zuzites at Ham, the Emites at Sheva Kirathayim, and the Horites at Mount Seir, as far as El Paran at the edge of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat now called Kadesh, and conquered all the territory of the Amalekites and also the Amorites living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the rebel kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, Zeboim, and Bela, also called Zor, prepared for battle in the valley of the Dead Sea. They fought against King Kedarlaomer of Elam, King Tidal of Goyim, King Amraphel of Babylonia, and King Ariak of Elasar, four kings against five. As it happened, the valley of the Dead Sea was filled with tar pits, and the army of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into the tar pits, while the rest escaped into the mountains. The victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and the food supplies. They also captured Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom, and carried off everything he owned. But one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram the Hebrew, who was living near the oak grove belonging to Mamre, the Amorite. Mamre and his relatives, Ishkol and Aner, were Abram's allies. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men who had been born into his household. Then he pursued Kedarlaomer's army until he caught up with them at Dan. There he divided his men and attacked during the night. Kedarlaomer's army fled, but Abraham chased them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and other captives. You do not even want to know how long I practiced those names <laughs> to get them right. If we have to say Kedar La Omer one more time, uh, that's not going to be a good thing. All right. So this is an interesting text, isn't it? Um, war has come to the region where Abram is living and he and his family kind of get caught in the crosshairs of all of this stuff that is happening around them. So let me just say, uh, first of all, that I think, uh, generally speaking, war narratives are really fascinating. Like I don't really have a lot of time for reading, not nearly as much as I'd like. And when I do sit down to read a book, I very rarely have time to read fiction. However, I will confess to you just as kind of a break, if I do sit down just to read something fun, uh, there's this particular strain of historical fiction that I'm really drawn to. Um, if you're familiar with the author Bernard Cornwell, he writes a lot of historical fiction and it's a lot of medieval times and battles. He creates these fictional characters that fight in real historical events and places. Um, filling in all these gaps uh, in the historical record with conjecture, basically. Anyways, I find his descriptions of battle and strategy and maneuver to be really fascinating. 
uh, since these events were taking place in a culture in a time that's so far removed from our own, right? Like 8th and 9th century battles are a very different thing than what we think of today. Armor and weapons, tactics, strategies, all of that has to match the time period. And even though uh, his stories, uh, Cornwell's stories, are filling in lots of fictional details, I feel like you still learn a lot through his research into the period about what conflicts in those days looked like. So it makes me start to look at the story as a product of a time period in which it's located, right? A 9th century Viking fights very differently than a 12th century knight, for example. So, up until this point in Genesis now, Abram has been carrying on in various regions. He's having some interaction with other people groups like the Egyptians, for example. But it's largely been about him living his life. He's going wherever God leads him. He's doing his own thing. But in chapter 14, he gets caught up in a conflict that's outside of himself. And for the first time, maybe, we get to see Abram as not just a follower of God, but a follower of God from within his historical context. Abram is interacting with the world kind of the way that a a Bronze Age clan or tribe leader would do. See, sometimes it feels like when we read the Bible, particularly the first uh, several chapters of Genesis, but it can happen other places too, everything just feels really far away. I mean, we are separated by an enormous gulf of time and distance. It's a very different, different part of the world from where we live with different customs and understandings. And it's an entirely different period of history. I mean, thousands of years ago, our life today is drastically different than what their life looked like then, even though the things that we do recognize and the things that do feel uh, familiar are, are really quite uncanny. But so far in Genesis, everything that we've seen, creation, we've Adam and Eve, Noah, Tower of Babel, All that stuff feels like it's so far away. It could be thousands of years. It could be a million years from the way that it feels. Yes, I mean, we get a lot of uh, genealogies and we get names and family histories and all all of that uh, through the early pages of Genesis. But here in chapter 14, we get something that's a little bit different. We get some names of other kings, other cultures, other societies that are at war with each other. How big was this war? You know, I wonder a lot about the size of conflicts like this. We don't really know. Uh, we aren't really given any information about that. But I wonder how, my, how many men did Kedar Laomer, I'm going to say that a few more times, have at his disposal? How many men did he bring with him? I wonder. I mean, are we talking about hundreds? Are we talking about thousands? We have four kings against five. How many men faced off in that battlefield? Abram only had 318 and he won the day, although he did seem to attack at night and with the element of surprise, so he could have overcome a larger force. We don't really have a lot of information to go on, and so uh, much of the history from this time period is fairly speculative. However, even so, most of those names that are mentioned sound really familiar. The kings that are named, their names actually turn up in some other ancient sources from the second millennia B.C., It's hard to pin down exactly because of variances in spelling and it's not like there's one unifying language, right? So names and things get translated back and forth. But um, some have even uh, supposed that one of the names, the first name we get, Amraphel, 
is a variation of Amrapi, uh, and and some have suggested that perhaps this is a guy that you might have actually heard of uh, by the name of Hammurabi. Now, that is total conjecture, okay? There really is not uh, enough evidence to make that conclusion. But what that should do for us is to help us locate the approximate time period that we're talking about. See, this is not prehistoric anymore. There are actual archaeological fragments and evidence from this very time that Abraham lived. So my mental image of Abraham has to change a little bit, right? He wasn't just some prehistoric wanderer. He lived in this concrete time period. He lived in a world with contemporaries, with kings and kingdoms and cities and citizens. He lived in a culture, in a world where some things were in his control and some things were not. He lived with rulers and authorities, and sometimes they didn't get along with each other. And sometimes he had to live with the consequences of their actions and their decisions, not just his own. Five kings went to war against four kings. Actually, they were rebelling after being subjects for 12 years, the Bible says. So presumably they had already been conquered at some point. Uh, War must not have been a new invention, right? Certainly this was not the first war that the world had ever seen. It's just the first one that we read about in the Bible. And then I think, why exactly did Abraham have 318 trained men? I mean, trained for what? The implication is that they were trained for battle. Why did he have his own army? Think about the world consisting of small tribes and small kingdoms, each one having to defend its own territory from each other. That is the world that Abram lived in. He was a member of a society, right? For all its good and all its bad, he was a man who was a part of the world that he lived in. And the reason that that is significant to me is because sometimes my mental picture of the heroes of the Bible is that they're existing in this sort of spiritual vacuum, that there's nothing really around them to interfere with their communion with God. It's just them and God, and they're writing those pages of scripture together. Abraham had this great faith because he had this unbroken communion with God and nothing ever interfered with it. But that is not true, is it? That's just not true. Abraham fought battles and defended his territory. He pursued the kings who carried off his relatives and he rescued them. He risked his life and the lives of his household because nine other cities lined up on a battlefield, a conflict that had nothing to do with him. Yet he got drawn into it. And I think, wouldn't it be nice If today it could just be you and God, you could just sit in his presence. You could just talk about his word together and just kind of be in that amazing spiritual space, but you have to go to work. You have to get the kids off to school. You have to deal with projects and deadlines and you have to clean up messes that other people made, don't you? You have to interact with and be kind to people who seem intent on destroying your peace and your calm today. You have to be the member of a society. You have to be part of a family. And you have to deal with people who make really poor choices sometimes. How will you do it? This is your permission today. Not 
not to go to war and attack others. I know that's what some of you were thinking. But to attack your day, to attack your projects and your deadlines, to attack your problems and your challenges, and know that those things are not the exception to a life of following God. They're actually a part of it. The question is, how will you follow God in the midst of your conflict and your stress and your culture? What if following God doesn't mean withdrawing from the world around you, but it means engaging it in a way that honors the God who made you, kind of the way that Abram chose to pursue and rescue Lot and his family, engaging in a conflict that wasn't his own in order to rescue someone close to him? I wonder... Is there something you need to engage in today? A conflict, a mess, a circumstance that is not your fault. But somebody needs you to be there for them. Let's pray. God, would you show us how to engage? Would you show us how to challenge? Would you show us how to rise to the challenges that uh, come at us, even when it feels like it's got nothing to do with you? The way that we respond has everything to do with you. God, help us to follow you today in our world. In your name, amen.